Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, opportunity to look at your word. Lord, we are so grateful that we have the scriptures, that uh, you have shared your truth with us, that you have embodied the truth, and that you have made us people who long for and follow after the truth. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at it today, that you would prepare our hearts so that we can hear from you, that you would give us ears to hear, feet that are quick to obey, and that every person here would hear from you and know exactly what they need to do with what they've heard today. We thank you for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. All right, very good. So, uh, what we are doing here this morning is part of the ministry of Cornerstone Community Church, and everything that we do is, in, is intended to inspire and equip people to follow Jesus. What's that word? Wholeheartedly. And that's going to be a key word and key theme of what we are talking about today. And uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why we want that to be the case is that we know that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. I want to welcome those of you who may be listening or watching on demand as we post the messages online, uh, on demand. And as well, on Sunday morning, some people are watching along online, so welcome. We are glad that you are here. And of course, the best experience is when you are in person, on site here uh, with everybody else. And anybody who is new, I would welcome you to text the word new to our church number, 603-225-2550. That way we'll be able to welcome you personally and encourage you along. Now, you might have noticed that we have been in a series on the, the Psalms, and nothing I read today has to do with the Psalms. Uh, and that's because I've had kind of a weird week in preparing the message in that um, uh, I aspire to be the kind of pastor that prepares weeks ahead of time and knows exactly what we're going to be doing six months from now. And I've been at this about 20 years, at least, preaching week in and week out, begging the Lord that that would be the case and that I could uh, have that kind of experience, seeing other pastors who are uh, having that experience, and that's their planning schedule. And for whatever reason, and it's no lack of trying that's not how I experience preaching and preparation. Very often, I will uh, not get, uh, I'm like, some people are like uh, 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 slow cookers. You know, they just put the stuff in and then it, it keeps cooking over time, over time, over time. Within the last couple of years, we got an instant pot. I am an instant pot when it comes to message. It's the pressure cooking that makes my messages. And so Sunday comes with remarkable frequency, and every week I have something to say. It's just that it's the pressure that does it. So this was a week that was kind of odd. You know, usually I get it, have an idea of where I want to go, and nothing was coming, no psalms, no nothing. But uh, as the week was ending, which is very often the case, and I just became fine with it. It's like, I don't have to be like other pastors. I can just do it the way that the Lord seems to work with me. And so there you go. Um, so as I was thinking about it, and uh, I had three experiences over the course of this week 
that formed today's message. So when I'm deciding what I should talk about, I'm constantly trying to immerse myself in God's word because I want ministry to be overflow. Uh, so I want him to fill me up with his word and his perspective and all of that kind of thing. And then it just kind of comes out from there. And then the other thing I'm constantly doing is uh, considering what are the needs within the congregation and praying about and thinking about how those two things, what I see in God's word and what the needs of the congregation are. And um, as I was going through these experiences, I felt like this was what the Lord was pointing me towards and it's not a part of the Psalm series and it's, it could be a standalone message. It could be a part of something that is just beginning. Maybe this is the introduction to a new series. I don't know, uh, but we'll find out, I guess. Um, but uh, what I realized was as I was having these experiences and relating to them and thinking, oh, that's good. I wanna share that with our congregation, um, the, the end result was I, I kind of had to come up with a theme. It's like, what is, what is the theme of what I'm seeing? What are the themes? What is the theme? Because I always try to have one bottom line so you know exactly what we're talking about and you, you know exactly what it is that I'm trying to communicate. And I also try to make it answer a particular question. And what was the particular question that these experiences were pointing to? And I think that it is this question. What makes for a great church. What makes for a great church? When people are looking around for shopping, if you'll forgive the expression, for a new church, what are the kinds of things that they are looking for? What are the things that make for a great church? And you probably have some ideas and some experience with that. Uh, and uh, these experiences and the themes that I was noticing, is like, well, sometimes these align with they definitely align with God's word because that's where I was getting them from, but they don't necessarily align with what we think of on a surface level and immediately that makes for a great church. So um, today what we're doing is we're talking about what makes for a great church. We're talking about church. And I'm going to give you in the practical application step, which we call the challenge, a question and a response to that question that I think will make for a great church, no matter where it is or who it's made up of or what time or place they find themselves in. And obviously, if we're gonna participate in church, we want to have a great church experience and we want to be a part of a great church. So as I was tying these themes together, I was reminded of a statement that I first heard from Rick Warren, who's the founding pastor of Saddleback um, Community Church in Southern California. And he has a great talent for putting things together. And I have a great talent for finding other people who do a good job at putting things together and stating them a certain way. And this is what he says. A great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission. This is, at essence, what makes a great church. And maybe you didn't think of that when you were thinking, when I was asking what makes for a great church, you might have thought about the music or the preaching or the building or a variety of different things, the ministry to children and youth. All of those things are important, but I think that the key distinguishing characteristic of a great church is this great commitment to the things that Jesus taught us in the great commandment and the great commission. And so 
as we get to the application step, my question that I want you to ask yourself is this. If you, if I, were completely sold out for Jesus and his kingdom, what would you do? What would you do where? Well, what would you do in life? I mean, what, how would you handle your relationships? How would you handle your commitments? How would you handle your money? What would you say yes to? What would you say no to? If you were completely sold out for Jesus and his kingdom, what would you do? And then I'm going to encourage you. Just do that. Just do that. All right, so my three experiences that led me to this uh, message today with the theme that a great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission, I will start in uh, New York, where we were over the last couple of days, dropping off our daughter Joy at college. And uh, it's a Christian school, Bible Institute, and same one that John went to, where he met Mason. And we were in the orientation, which uh, was pretty much a church service which was kind of cool. Uh, they had announcements for orientation. They also had singing, a great band, and also a message. And the message was given by not just the president of the college, but the president of the whole organization that has locations, camps, schools in 81 countries around the world. His name is Don Locke. And he spoke on that first verse that I read to you about truth. And I thought, that is a good message. I was still deciding what I was going to be talking about today. I thought about saying, hey, guys, I heard a great message from Don Locke this week. Let me tell you it <laughs> and give it to you this morning. I'm going to summarize it for you, but it um, highlighted something that I think is foundational to this idea of what makes a great church. Um, a great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission. Where did we get the great commandment and the great commission? From Jesus. And we find Jesus and these statements in his word. So the foundation that's kind of behind all of this is this, that a great church is scripturally sound and centered on Jesus. Scripturally sound and centered on Jesus. Here's the thumbnail sketch of Don Locke's message on Proverbs 23, 23. Easy one to remember and to memorize because that, uh, it's short and it's got that nice, easy uh, reference. Buy the truth and do not sell it. The first thing that, uh, that he noted was that there is such a thing as truth. In our culture and time and place, it is not necessarily agreed upon that there is such a thing as absolute truth, that some things are absolutely right and some things are absolutely wrong, that some things are absolutely true and some things are absolutely false. And in the midst of that culture, we, as the body of Jesus Christ, as his presence on earth, we say to the world, yes, there is such a thing as truth. And he illustrated the importance of that by showing that different takes on truth, if everybody has their own truth and everybody can just believe what they want and that's okay, that is, since that is not true, it has consequences. 
And he gave an example because he travels all over the world for his job where he was in, uh, he was trying to get to Hungary in a place where he didn't speak the language and he could tell that they were making announcements, but he had his ticket and he knew what gate he was supposed to be at and he gets on the plane heading for Budapest, Hungary. The only problem is that when the plane landed, it landed in Vienna, Austria. Because he believed something, this plane is going to get me to Budapest, that was not true. And in our world today, people are embracing lies. They are embracing all kinds of lies about, in particular, human sexuality and identity. And you could just continue, you know, politics and everything. There's all ki- there are all kinds of lies that people are embracing today. Now, if it didn't matter, and if there wasn't anything such thing as absolute truth, then we would just mind our own business and be fine with that. But because we care about others, it's important for us to internalize and embrace the truth and also do what we can to share it with others as well. Because, and, and if you didn't hear the message on, uh, on uh, the psalm that talks about uh, the fool says there is no God. Go back and listen to that again because I had a very different take on it than probably what you're used to and what you've probably heard from that because um, what was foolish about the person who says that there is no God was actually a very specific thing if you read the rest of the psalm. They were believing that there was no consequence, that there, there was no accountability for people who do wrong. And they're like, there's no God. He's not going to hold me accountable so I can go ahead and do the wrong thing. It was a false assumption. And we are full and surrounded by, full of and surrounded by false assumptions in our world today. And it's important for us to embrace the truth. So his first point was that there is absolute truth uh, and that it's costly by the truth. And he was encouraging Bible Institute students to put the effort in that they need in order to get the truth out of God's word. We encourage you to daily read and respond to God's word in the same theme, that it's just not going to plop into your mind that there's sometimes a little bit of effort that has to be put into it. And then the other point, the third point, was that it's possible to sell the truth. It's possible to exchange it for something of lesser value. It's, it's possible to sell out the truth and embrace a lie. And so that's one of the reasons why we are a biblically-based church. We are endeavoring to be scripturally sound. Why? Because as we learned in the Paradigm series, if you want to read and understand the Bible, you have to understand that the Bible is a unified uh, work and that what the Bible teaches is true is true. Uh, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, your word is truth. In fact, that's right, the next verse that I had up. Uh, And we want to be a scripturally sound church. Anytime that you see something that has church on the outside of the building, but they unmoor and unanchor themselves from the scripture, they will drift and drift and be farther and farther away from the truth, and that has consequences. So we want to be scripturally sound. But notice also that I said we want to be focused on, centered on Jesus. 
because the point of the Bible, and this is the paradigm, is to point us to Jesus. And there is an interesting relationship between God's word, what he says being truth, and Jesus. And that relationship is highlighted in the introduction to the Gospel of John when John says, the word became flesh and blood. It's not just that we have these statements that are true. It's saying that God's word is truth. And then that truth is embodied in, pers- it, 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 it takes up residence in, it is equal to Jesus. The word became flesh. And then Jesus himself reaffirmed this in John 6, 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's possible to unmoor yourself from the truth of God's word and drift away, but it's also possible to have your focus be so much on, uh, on truth that you forget about Jesus and the relationship and the embodiment of Jesus uh, of the truth. And um, I think that uh, this is highlighted in the other half of Proverbs 23, 23, because remember, it doesn't end with buy the truth and do not sell it. It goes on to say wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. In other words, what he's saying is you can have the truth, but it takes a certain skill to wield it effectively. That you can, just like a sword, you can do great damage and you can do great good. Just like a hammer, You can build something or you can destroy something. And the truth kind of is like that as well. And so what what the proverb is saying is that it's not just enough to have the truth. That's important, but there's, there's skill in it as well. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. And that leads to my second story. And that's how to handle the truth well. Because a great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the Great Commission. What is the Great Commandment? It's all about loving God and loving our neighbor. So my second story is this. The, the night after we were uh, listening to that message and I thought about, oh, I'm just gonna present that to, to our church and maybe that'll be my message for this week. I was writing in a Bible that we had gotten for Joy for her birthday. Her birthday is in August she wanted to have the Bible with her at school, of course, and so Sue Ellen had written a little letter in the back of it, and it was my turn to write a letter at the little back of it. Remember, I said I'm an instant pot, so I'm writing this as we are getting ready to hand it off to her and leave, so that's just how I do. That's how I roll. Uh, so I was writing it, and I was thinking about what was said last night and Don Locke's message and how good that was and how grateful I am that she has the opportunity to learn that, but then I was thinking about, you know what? There's something, there's something missing, missing from that that I want to emphasize to my daughter because um, one of the best things about her, and in this, like so many things, she reflects her mother, is that um, she not only knows the truth. I mean, she grew up in church. She went to uh, the equivalent of Christian schools her whole life with being homeschooled and online school and all that. So, so she has a good foundation in the truth. But... What I want for my children is more than just to know the truth. I want them to have the right heart as well. 
And so when I was writing that, I recounted the Proverbs 23, 23, but then I was like, but you know what? There's something else that I really appreciate about you that I want to emphasize and I don't want you to lose in the midst of that. And that was related to the second passage that Laura wrote that ends up with, and the greatest of these is love. Because you can wield truth unlovingly. And you can, in an effort to be loving, sacrifice the truth. We don't wanna do any of those things. And sometimes people set it up as an either or. You can either be loving and kind, or you can be truthful. I think that what Jesus modeled and what Jesus taught us is that these are actually, if you wanna be loving, then you have to be truthful. And it's one of the best things that you can do to be loving is to be truthful. They're, 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 they match together really well. Or, if you're taking notes, the way I put it was this. A great church recognizes that truth and love are not in conflict, but complementary. Truth and love are not in conflict, but complementary. Where do we see this? Well, most obviously in Jesus. Again, in the introduction to, John chap to John's gospel in chapter one, verse 14, it describes Jesus. And this is interesting because it says, he is the exact representation of God. He is God made flesh. He is the word of God, the truth of God made flesh. And what was he like? He was full of grace and truth. He was 100% gracious and 100% truthful. And he evidently, and like his father, evidently, sees no conflict in those two. So, great, commit, great church, great commitment to the great commandment. What is the great commandment? We see one example of it in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And you must love the Lord your God. Now, this didn't surprise any of his listeners because they had heard this before. They pretty much agreed that the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God. But notice how it goes on to describe it as an all-in, wholehearted, no-holds-barred commitment. See how many times all shows up. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, all your all of everything you got. That's what you're supposed to love the Lord your God with. But what did surprise them was that they would add, he would add a, a, a second, a corollary, a, a, a pairing of loving God with loving your neighbor. Verse 31, the second is equally important. Notice equally, equally. That's why we don't call it the great commandments. We call it the great commandment in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all intertwined. And it's not in conflict. If you want to know how, what does it look like to love God wholeheartedly? Well, you can do that in part by loving your neighbor. People who love God love their neighbor. If you want to love God, what's the best way you can go about it? Well, loving your neighbor 
is a way that you demonstrate and show your love for God. Are there other ways? Yeah, maybe sure, but, but that's how Jesus equated them and joined them together. And back to John chapter 1, verse 14, here's the, how the message puts it. Like father, like son. Like father, like son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. What if when people encountered people from church, was like, they were like, wow, you know what? They are generous inside and out, just a generous spirit. Do you think, what do you, what do you think of when you think about generosity? Yeah, we think of money, but when you are generous in your evaluation of someone, what are you doing? When you are generous in your speech, what does that sound like? Generous inside and out. And also true from start to finish. True from start to finish. Um, what if the people of God, the people that go to a particular church were known for their generosity of spirit and authenticity and integrity and truthfulness um, from start to finish? What would that be like? Well, it, it would actually be like what God intended because in Romans 8.29, it says this, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. What did it say? Jesus, like father, like son. And what's his plan for us? Pretty much like father, like son. Chose us to become like his son. And so that's what is emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the, the prevalence of the importance of love. And go back and read that again. What does it look like? What does it describe? And then put your, this was a, a hint that I heard somewhere else. It's wherever it says love, put your name in there and see if it still reads as if it makes sense. Brian is kind. Brian is patient. Brian keeps no record of wrongs. What would it look like if you put your name in there? Would it be true? And so, uh, this is what the apostle says. If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love others, what would I be? A, real, a really great believer? No, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's the most irritating noise that you can think of? Okay, that's what it's like when a person says, I follow Jesus, but they're not loving if I had the gift of prophecy, because the, 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 this, um, this chapter, the context is not marriage, even though we'll read it at weddings. The context is ministry. It's spiritual gifts. And so you'll see as you look through all these spiritual gifts, if I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith, I could move mountains, but didn't have love, I would be nothing. And if I gave everything to the poor, generosity there in finances, and even sacrificed my body, if I was a martyr, I could boast about it. I was like, yep, good job. But if I didn't have love, I would have gained nothing. So you can have all of these talents, all of these spiritual gifts, do all of this ministry, but if it's not done in and with love, you are annoying nothing and accomplishing nothing. And so I ended that little writing that I did in Joy's Bible with the quote at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. These things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is 
love. It is not our commitment to truth, but our love for one. Now, should we be committed to truth? Absolutely. And if we are loving, we will be committed to truth and we will share the truth. But what's the distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Jesus? Your love for one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's what Jesus said. So, so I heard that message on truth. I said, that is good. We need to be committed to the truth. We need to be scripturally sound and we need to be living for Jesus who is the embodiment of truth. He is the truth. He is the word of God made flesh. Um, but like Jesus, we need to make sure that that truth is paired with love, that there, we are full of, full of grace and truth. And then lastly, third experience I had, great commitment that emphasized that a great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission was when I was uh, doing my life journaling. Now, I've been listening to a particular podcast slash thing that's a devotional, and it pointed us to that third passage that we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I noticed something that resonated with me because what I've noticed is that sometimes churches become committed to lesser things, lesser allegiances, lesser missions. And scripturally speaking, a great church makes all other issues secondary to the mission. All other issues are secondary to the mission. And what's, what's the mission? Well, that's found in the Great Commission. Remember, we looked at Romans 8.29. God knew his people in advance, chose them to become like his son. What's that process? That process of becoming like his son. Some say con- some translations say conform to the image of his son and then people in church talk about spiritual formation what does that mean it's discipleship it's growing in christ and what does that look like it means that we look more and more like christ in our character and in the way we interact with our world and so it's back to romans eight twenty nine. he chose them to become like his son And so the Great Commission is for that to happen. Therefore, Jesus speaking to his disciples and through the apostles to us, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, interesting little side note there. We use the word nations. If you're reading in the New Living Translation, there's a little footnote there. And the alternate reading is to all peoples because that's really what ethnos means. It's not not states. It's not nation states necessarily. It's different people. It's different kinds of people. And so he's saying, go and make disciples of all. I didn't highlight it there again, but there's that all. We've seen a lot of alls. All the nations, every kind of people. And so in that passage that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what the Apostle Paul has said is, look, I've got a commission It's the same commission that Jesus gave to all of us to go and make disciples. And I make that my priority. I don't let anything distract me from that. I don't put anything above that. Everything else is subservient to that because that's my mission and commission from Jesus. If I don't do that, I have failed. If I let other things slide, That may be okay as long as I do that because this is what we're supposed to be about. Here's how he said it. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. 
Nothing gets to trump, to go above, to displace the mission. Nothing, nothing. And how does he do that? Well, he's listed, if you listen carefully, all the different ways that their world was split up. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. Some are observe the law, some don't observe the law. When it's talking about weak and weaknesses, if you read that in context, it's not talking about physical weakness or even spiritual weakness. It's talking about people who have different, different convictions about things. And so he's saying, no matter what, where, uh, how the world tries to divide people up and put us into different camps, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna play that game. I'm going to try to find common ground with everyone. Why? Because I agree with them? Because I think their way is better? No, because I'm on mission, doing everything I can to save some. Uh, this was kind of highlighted to me when I had another experience. I uh, this wasn't one of the three experiences, but, um, but earlier in the week, I was at home and the doorbell rang and I looked to see who it was and the way our door is set up, I can see outside and I could see it was somebody that I did not know. <laughs> and I don't like it when strangers <laughs> ring my doorbell. And so I, I literally said, oh, because I was now where she could probably see me. And so I felt like, you know, it's pretty obvious that somebody's home. So I felt like I had to answer the door. And it was somebody who was running for office and she was doing her canvassing and she was actually trying to, to stir up the base. So, and our street is kind of weird with, with addresses and all. So she had the wrong address and she didn't know where she needed to be. But she said, well, since I'm here, can we talk? And so I talked to her and we had a great, very nice conversation. And it very clear, very quickly, very clearly became uh, apparent to me this was not somebody I was going to vote for, <laughs> right? Um, oh, oh, because uh, uh, she was coming from a totally different political perspective, and she uh, uh, was going to be for things that I am not. I am definitely not for. But I was listening to it, and I was thinking about it after the fact, and I was like, okay, I listened respectfully. She didn't really ask me any questions, so I didn't really have, I, you know, and I didn't take the opportunity to, to, to um, blast her with my perspective. But, um, but I was thinking about what could we do to have common ground? And you know what I realized? We actually want very many, a lot of the same things. We, we want uh, to be good, uh, the way I would describe it is to be good stewards of the environment. Uh, we want to um, make sure that every child has a great education. We both want to see every child welcomed into a loving family. We disagree on the how to do those things pretty significantly. And I think my way makes more sense and her way is wrong. But... What could, I, what, what could I have done? I could have looked at it and said, we want the same things, but we disagree on how to get there. Now, we are in a world that is encouraging us to divide and conquer, to demonize, to hate people who disagree about the way to get to things. And you know, there are some things she probably definitely wants that I definitely do not want, but... The most important thing to me for her is not that she adopt my political philosophy, 
but that she has an opportunity to know Jesus. And so I could do things that would drive her away and make her not want to listen to me and my perspective, or I could do things that would show that despite our significant differences, maybe just somewhere we can find some common ground. That's my aim. Why? Because, yeah, I'd like it if she voted the way I did and had my perspective, but I want her to know Jesus. And that's the most important thing. That will hopefully, eventually, solve all those other things. But those things aren't going to be solved ultimately without knowing Jesus. So I don't want to do anything that will put a stumbling block in the way of somebody coming to know Jesus. And I'm afraid all too often people who gather under the umbrella of church are tripping people up on the way to Jesus over lesser things. They're important things sometimes, but they're lesser things. And so let's make sure that our approach reflects the apostle Paul, reflects Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Let's try to find common ground with everyone so that we can accomplish our mission trying to do trying to save some, he subs it, sums it up like this. I do everything to spread the good news. I do everything to spread the good news. That's the most important thing to me. That's the thing that's above all, number one, no holds barred. That's what I'm gonna do. Why? Because when people say yes to Jesus, as I encourage you every week to do, uh, that, that, that fixes what's on the inside. You, you, you embrace the truth. You become full of his generous spirit and that transforms your life and you actually get better at life and have a better life and a life that lives through all eternity. So say yes to Jesus and that's what I'm gonna encourage you to do every week because I know that your life will be better if you say yes to Jesus and I want everybody to experience that and I wanna do everything I can to make that happen. So today we're talking about church. What have we said? A great church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission. And so there's a lot of clarity that that provides because who are we a church for? Well, we're a church for everyone. I do all things to do accomplish everyone. Uh, I want you to know Jesus and that's the only thing that matters to me when it comes to participation at church. What is our core strength? Here's what I would like to be our core strength, that we're a people who are all in, that we're all answering the question, what does it take to be following Jesus wholeheartedly? What would somebody in my position do who is following Jesus wholeheartedly? Ah, these people do that. These people do that. What's our core strength? We're a people who are all in in following Jesus. And so how do we do that? We core, our core measurement is participation. There are certain things. I'll go through them very briefly. It's showing up. We gather together. It's serving. It's having a circle of friends so that when you have a problem or when you want to celebrate, you have somebody that you can do that with. It's stewarding our resources, our finances in such a way that uh, we are advancing the kingdom of God and it's being concerned for people who are outside of the kingdom of God. When you're doing those things, and we'll talk more about that in coming weeks and days, um, I consider you a member of this church. It's participation in the mission that manages that. So coming to the end, here's the question. 
if you were completely sold out for Jesus and his kingdom, what would you do? And then do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your all. And Lord, this requires wisdom. The, the truth requires wisdom, instruction. It requires grace to handle it well. So make us a people who are 100% committed to the truth and full of the truth. And make us also a people who are winsome and attractive and kind and full of the Holy Spirit so that we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit and make us a people, I pray, who will be all in, wholehearted, no holds barred followers of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help me and everyone listening to ask that question honestly of you. Lord, what would it look like how would my life be different if I were following you wholeheartedly? And then, Lord, please give me the courage, the strength, the power that only you can provide to do that. For your glory, for your honor, for the sake of your son in whose name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.